Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on SpeechTherapyPD.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word KEYS. Visit SpeechTherapyPD.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs, Keys to Supporting People with Huntington's Disease. I am Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. Here are the required financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. Michael DeRiesthal is an associate professor in the Department of Hearing and Speech Sciences at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and director of the Pi Beta Phi Rehabilitation Institute. He receives an honorarium for this presentation from speechtherapypd.com. He is the managing editor for the Clinical Aphasiology Conference Proceedings in the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology. And here are our learning objectives for this course. One, provide an overview of Huntington's disease and recent research findings. Two, describe speech and cognitive challenges as Huntington's disease progresses. And three, explain ways SLPs can support people with Huntington's disease. And now we welcome our guest today, Dr. Michael DeRiesthal, PhD, CCC, SLP. Michael is an associate professor in the Department of Hearing and Speech Sciences at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and director of the Pi Beta Phi Rehabilitation Institute. Prior to that, he worked as an SLP at the VA in Gainesville, Florida. Dr. DeRiesthal's clinical and research interests include the management of neurologic, speech, language, and cognitive disorders, and he has taught, presented, and published papers and book chapters on these topics. He is a founding member of the Interdisciplinary TBI Clinic at Vanderbilt and provides services in the Interdisciplinary Huntington's Disease Clinic. He has served as the chair of the Education and Standards Committee of the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences. Currently, he is the managing editor for the Clinical Aphasiology Conference Proceedings in the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology. We are so happy to have you here on Keys for SLPs to talk about supporting people with Huntington's disease. Your work is so important to our profession and those you serve. I was fortunate to meet you at ASHA, and I am so pleased that you are joining us today. Well, thank you, Mary Beth. It's really great to be here. I appreciate the the offer. Well, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey as an SLP? Yes. So I actually became interested in speech-language pathology when I was in high school. 
working at a camp for children and adults with disabilities on Long Island. From that experience, I decided to apply to colleges for that specifically, and I went to Northwestern University for undergrad. After taking my first neuro class in undergrad, I realized that that was kind of my area of interest and what I'd like to focus on. I applied to graduate school and got my master's at Vanderbilt University and my PhD. And while I was in the master's program, really became more interested in neurogenic communication disorders. Ultimately completed my PhD with a focus on aphasia. However, after graduating, I went down to the VA Medical Center in Gainesville, Florida, where I was a practicing clinician and also an affiliate of the Brain Rehabilitation Research Center. And working within VA, I would say that VA clinicians have to know everything because you have to see every patient who comes through the door. You're doing swallowing, you're doing voice, you're seeing patients with motor speech disorders, with aphasia, with cognitive communication impairments. And so you have to know a lot about this. And I felt like I got a great experience being exposed to individuals with a wide variety of um, diagnostic, a wide variety of disorders. After spending about five years at the VA Medical Center, I moved back to Nashville and became an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I worked within Pi Beta Phi Rehabilitation Institute, which is Vanderbilt's outpatient neurorehabilitation institute for two years as a clinician and a faculty member teaching several courses in our master's program before I became the director. And I've been the director now for almost 14 years. And during the time that I've been the director, I've been able to engage with a variety of interdisciplinary clinics, one being the traumatic brain injury clinic that you mentioned, but also within the past six or seven years, the interdisciplinary Huntington's disease clinic. Prior to being involved in the Huntington's disease clinic, I think I probably worked with maybe one or two individuals with this diagnosis. I always tell my students and some of my colleagues in the clinic that I would talk about Huntington's disease once a year when I would discuss hyperkinetic dysarthria in my motor speech class, but I had very little experience. But my colleague, Dr. Daniel Clausen, who's a neurologist, he started the interdisciplinary Huntington's clinic and wanted to bring in a speech language pathologist who could be in clinic and provide some help with differential diagnosis of folks with HD, but also some other patients who were not yet diagnosed, who could provide uh, support to the patients in terms of their challenges with speech, their challenges with communication overall, and with their cognitive function. The reason he wanted to bring a speech pathologist in is that he had done his training at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and worked closely with Edie Strand and Joe Duffy. So he was used to working with SLPs who were in the clinic and were really supporting the neurologist in terms of diagnosis, but also the plan of care for future treatment. So it's been really great to work with a neurologist who is so keen on working with SLPs and values our input. So good that those have paved the way for you, right? Absolutely. Although it's uh, when he told me that, I thought, well, gosh, now I have to live up to that. Just a little pressure. Just a little pressure. (laughs) And I don't know that I have. Well, you're still there. That should say something, right? (laughs) So it's really over the years, my interests clinically and in research have always been fairly broad. Um, I have done research in aphasia. I've done research related to traumatic brain injury and primary progressive aphasia. But over the last six or seven years, we've been involved with clinical research related to Huntington's disease, which has been very exciting and is a population that I really never thought I would work with earlier on in my career. 
Wow. Well, it is such an exciting career that, you know, you didn't really change focus. You're still, you know, very much in the neurological area, but you shifted your focus, I would say, to Huntington's disease. And what a great thing about our profession to be able to try new things and learn new things and and help different people at different parts of your career. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's a very impressive career. And I'm so honored to have you here today. So let's talk about Huntington's disease. Can you just give us a broad overview? So Huntington's disease is an autosomal dominant neurodegenerative condition, which means that if one parent has the gene, then there's a 50% chance that their offspring will have the gene as well and develop Huntington's disease. Genetic testing is done to determine the number of CAG repeats that exist on the Huntington gene. We all have the Huntington gene, but individuals who develop Huntington's disease will have an abnormal number of repeats of the CAG nucleotide on chromosome four, which is where the Huntington gene lies. In general, an expansion of 40 or greater CAG repeats is diagnostic of Huntington's disease and means that there will be complete penetrance of the disease. So if you have 40 or greater CAG repeats, you will develop Huntington's disease at some point in your life. If you have 36 to 39 CAG repeats, that reflects the potential for partial penetrance, which means that some of those individuals may develop Huntington's disease, but some of them may not, okay? However, it means that if you are in that 36 to 39 range and you have children, there is a likelihood, even if you don't develop Huntington's, that maybe they will in the next generation. And so this is as because it is a genetic disorder and because it's passed down, then at least one of your parents has to have the gene. Individuals who come into the clinic oftentimes have had kind of a lifetime of experience living with an individual or being around an individual who has lived with Huntington's disease and has either passed from it or is currently experiencing the challenges associated with this degenerative condition. And so when individuals are diagnosed, many times they've already seen into the future regarding kind of what the future holds in terms of the changes that they're going to experience. Individuals with Huntington's disease will develop motor signs or motor symptoms. They'll demonstrate changes in cognitive function, and they will also experience changes in potentially in mood or develop psychological. So they'll develop, and these don't all develop together, but they will typically all develop at some point during the disease process. There are individuals who have, I'll back up and say that individuals with HD usually have onset of symptoms in their 40s or 50s, but there are individuals who may develop symptoms in their 20s or 30s. And then for individuals who have a significant, maybe 60 or more CAG repeats, they may develop juvenile Huntington's disease. And so their symptoms may occur when they are still an adolescent. And those individuals are kind of present slightly differently and they tend to progress a little bit more quickly in terms of their symptomology. So you can have a wide variety of individuals who come into clinic. Most of them are in their probably 30s, 40s, 50s, or we've had some who have been diagnosed even later. But then we have another cohort who are much younger 
when they're diagnosed. So with that younger cohort, what are the differences in symptomology? Well, obviously, they're going to be developing these symptoms from earlier on. They may be more acute and more rapidly progressing. And because of when they present, they can be somewhat more challenging to deal with because these are folks who have not fully developed. They're still in school. They're still trying to deal with adolescent and early adulthood. And so they're in a different phase of life than some of the other individuals who come in who are in their late 30s, 40s, 50s when they present. That makes sense. Okay. All right. So that's an overview of the initial symptoms and the genetic variations. So that brings me to think about genetic testing. There are lots of genetic testing. There's a lot that goes into that, right? Um, especially for someone who knows that they have the predisposition or the, or the potential for developing Huntington's. So can you talk about the issues with genetic testing? Yes. So within our clinic, we have a genetic counselor who works with patients along with the neurologist or nurse practitioner when they're initially being diagnosed. Interestingly, not all individuals, so obviously given it's a genetic disorder and people have a history of it within their family and often are aware of it and kind of know what can happen, you get some, some children of individuals who have HD who want to know early on and know what's ahead of them. And then there are a number of individuals who don't wish to know and will essentially kind of deal with it when, if the symptoms do start, okay? So we have some folks who are proactive and say, I want to know now so I can plan for the future. And we have others who say, you know what? I don't want the burden of knowing that this is definitely going to happen. And I will address it when the symptoms arise, right? So you have two kind of groups that can emerge. For children, they, if they're not symptomatic, they're not going to be tested, right? Until they're at least 18 or older. Typically. And that's because of the, the parent's choice or that's a medical decision that I think in general, kind of a medical decision, right? If they're not symptomatic, they want to kind of wait until the child is older and the individual can make their own decision about whether or not they would like to be tested, then to kind of do that right off the bat. So we have individuals, as I said, who come in and are kind of prepared to kind of take that next step, and others who don't wish to to be tested for that. When an individual decides that they want to be tested, they'll come in, they'll go through that process. And when the testing results come back, they will come back in for their follow-up visit and they will meet with the neurologist along with the genetic counselor to present and talk about what that means and explain to them what the next steps are, what resources are available, okay? Um, without overloading them with information. As I said, oftentimes they typically have some personal history with this and they understand to some degree what lies ahead, but not everybody does. I mean, not everybody does. There are times when folks come in, it might be kind of new to them that they have that Huntington's exists in their family because the individual who carried the gene in their family, their father or their mother passed away from something else prior to onset of the symptoms, right? And they might say, well, yes, I remember my grandmother, or my grandfather had some symptoms like this, but they didn't live very long. They also developed lung cancer and they passed away. And so we didn't really know, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time with, with them. And so there are times when we have people come in who don't know much about it and, and they need that education. And then for the folks who, who have lived with it and for whom it's a very real disease, and it's something that they're maybe confronted with every day because they 
they live with one of their parents or they've lived with their grandparent, they need that support, right? That comfort to know that, listen, we're with you along this journey and these are the next steps that we're going to take. So I would say within the clinic, typically when someone is receiving their diagnosis of HD and they're meeting with the genetic counselor and the neurologist, they don't see too many other providers that day. So we're typically not consulted to go in and talk to them about what challenges may lie ahead. They give them some space to come to kind of terms with the diagnosis. And then maybe in the next visit, we'll go in and talk to them. And especially if there's some change in speech, language, cognition, or swallowing, to talk to them about what we do and what we can help with. Okay. And how long after that initial visit is the first visit when they see you? It varies. Oftentimes, we'll come in for a consultation to see the neurologist if they don't have a diagnosis. If they determine they want to do genetic testing, they'll have that done and they'll come back within about four weeks and have that follow-up done. Then from there, they may be seen like three months, six months, nine months, or a year later, depending on kind of where they are. Are they asymptomatic? Are they showing some signs, but not motor signs? or are they showing motor signs? And I think kind of depending upon how they present, the neurologists figure out when they would like to see them for follow-up again. One of the issues we have too is that there aren't a ton of Huntington's disease clinics around the country. There are a number of them, but they tend to be kind of regional in, in nature. And so we have patients who come from all over to this clinic from different states. We've had people travel to clinic uh, from I think like North Dakota, from California, South Carolina to come in and come to the clinic because they know that they're working with clinicians, providers who understand the disease. And because of that, those individuals aren't coming every three months. Well, they may come every six months or they may come every year or as needed, right? If they start to notice a change, they'll make an appointment and come back in. It tends to run on kind of a three-month, six-month, nine-month, 12-month kind of cycle I've seen. Well, actually, I wanted to go back to the initial symptoms. Are the initial symptoms any prognosticators of of the disease progression? If you have the motor symptoms first, does that indicate anything? Good question. I'm not exactly sure, but I'll explain kind of some of the stages here. So with individuals with HD, you have folks who we know they have the requisite number of CAG repeats to determine that they will eventually develop Huntington's disease. And if they're asymptomatic, then they're in this bucket here. They're in that phase of ACE being asymptomatic. Um, Then you have this prodromal phase where individuals do not present with motor function, dysfunction, but they will present with potentially a change in mood or depression, anxiety, irritability, things of that nature, okay? They may start to demonstrate some changes in executive function or memory that kind of affect their ability to function in everyday life, work, at school, kind of whatever their kind of location is. And those folks are considered to be in this prodromal phase. Then you've got the individuals who have motor symptoms, right? And the motor symptoms that we see, the most prominent one is chorea, which is kind of a non-stereotyped fluid movement, okay, where actually Korea means dancing. And so they called it that because these individuals looked like they were dancing 
even though there was no music being played, right? And so you might see it in the upper extremity, you might see it within their head, you see it in the lower extremity as well. That totally makes sense. I just never thought of the etymology there that, of course. Like choreography, you know, so they have these choreiform movements. And so once they start to, now it's not that these start kind of all at once and are maximal at, at onset, it's they kind of gradually worsen over time. But once an individual starts to have um, motor signs, in particular chorea, although they may also present with dystonia as well, and of abnormal posture, they're considered to be motor manifest. And so oftentimes kind of eligibility for clinical trials are determined based on whether a patient with HD is motor manifest, right? Because many of the treatments related to Huntington's disease are designed to target the motor condition itself. Okay. You pose a good question. I need to talk to my neurology colleagues about the predictors of the path that these individuals will take as to whether one shows up first, uh, whether you're prodromal for a longer period of time before your motor manifest. I will tell you that all individuals with Huntington's disease will develop um, motor, cognitive, and behavioral symptoms at some point in the disease. Okay. Kind of the the onset of when those occur, I do think we kind of aren't fully clear about, right? But most of the treatments that are out there are really related to targeting. Most of the pharmacological treatments are designed to target the motor issues, chorea in particular, and the behavioral, psychological, psychiatric issues. Okay, using antipsychotics. And so those are the common medications that are used to manage individuals with um, HD. And then kind of beyond that would be from like a rehab perspective, what we can do behaviorally to help an individual with the symptoms that we see. All right. And so it really sounds like it's individual case, how long it's going to, how quickly it advances. There is some thought that the higher number of CAG repeats you have on the Huntington gene, maybe the faster this is going to progress, okay? And maybe the earlier it will present and maybe the faster it's going to progress, but there are outliers there too. That's not a perfect correlation. Um, and so there are other factors that play into this as well that folks are trying to determine too. And what is the life expectancy? You know, individuals with HD can live, you know, 10, 20 plus 30 years with this disease. It kind of depends on when it starts and, and how quickly it progresses to the point where they're having difficulty with swallowing and having difficulty with other bodily function. But there are some individuals who kind of live, some people kind of live a pretty good life with this as they're starting to decline and other people are more rapid in terms of their progression. And I think you said when we spoke earlier, there were 41,000 symptomatic Americans and 200,000 at risk for developing. So that would mean those who have been identified as having the CAG in some repeat. And that could also be individuals who are the offspring of individuals with HD. Who so have not been tested. They may not have been tested, but because we've seen in some families where it kind of like you know, they've got four kids and two have it and two don't. And we have other families where all four have it, you know, and it kind of really varies. But yes, that's how that kind of works is that we've got the folks that we have that are known. And then there are the people who are in the generation. They might be in their same generation, 
but have not been tested, or they might be the next generation and they've been tested or not been tested. And those are the folks that may develop HD. And are those numbers similar in other countries or consistent? Good question. I'm not sure. I do not know that. But there aren't any countries that stand out as having a significantly higher number that you know of. Not that I know of. Well, thank you for that overview. Is there anything else that you want to add? No, I think that covers it. Although I know, I think in the future, we'll talk a little bit about the clinic and maybe how it's organized. Um, And I kind of gave a little kind of hint to that, but we can talk more about that later. Okay, great. All right. So could you tell us about recent research on Huntington's disease? So in terms of kind of medical treatments, there has been some recent work done where they are trying to turn off the Huntington gene itself entirely or just the mutant Huntington gene portion. Oh, interesting. I won't go into, I, I don't understand all of the- Okay, the no, that's okay. Around it. I wish I did, but there have been some trials that have gone on related to that. One of those trials has stopped because of, that was the one turning off the entire Huntington gene. That stopped because of some side effects, but there's still a study going on looking at turning off the mutant Huntington gene um, and following these individuals longitudinally to see if there is a, whether the symptoms plateau, whether the symptoms get better or whatnot, right? So that's an exciting piece of information or of treatment that's coming out. Um, There are other studies that have been looking at how medication manages the motor symptoms itself. One of the uh, big medications that's used is called dutetrabenazine. And this is a medication that specifically is designed to improve choreiform movements. It's also used in tardive dyskinesia. You may have seen commercials about it. They have, I've seen them on TV related to um, tardive dyskinesia, but it's also used for Huntington's disease. And we have started doing some research looking at the impact of dutetrabenazine on speech function in particular. Um, We're still collecting data, so the jury's still out on this. But the idea is that by managing the choreiform movements, we may see a reduction in the presentation of dysarthria in these individuals, right? We might see improved intelligibility um, as they get to this therapeutic dose. Presently, we're working on a, a, a study we're doing. It's a kind of a simple pre-post study looking at doing a speech perceptual assessment, intelligibility assessment, as well as 3D motion capture um, imaging of our of articulation. Uh, that's done in one of my colleagues' lab. Her name's Ancha Meffert. She does this type of research. So we're getting pre-post intelligibility, speech perceptual assessment, and 3D motion capture um, in individuals with Huntington's disease who are who have not taken this anti-choreiform movement drug called dutetrabenazine, but who are now being prescribed it. And then once they get up to a therapeutic dose for a period of time, are coming back in to be evaluated. In addition to that, we are also doing pre and post physical therapy assessments, also using some 3D motion capture to see if we can pick up on any changes, gait kinematics. Okay, so can you just describe, I think I know what 3D motion capture is, but but can you just describe it a little bit more specifically? Yeah, it's really a neat tool. So as it relates to speech, essentially it's, they're roughly the, the same principle for whether you're looking at movement or speech, it's just that the sensors are much smaller for speech. So in speech, they place these small sensors um, strategically on the upper lip and jaw. When the individual speaks, it picks up on the movement of the upper lip and jaw, 
and can create kind of a 3D image of the movement of the articulators. In addition, my colleague has an articulograph where she has some sensors that are placed on the tongue and can pick up two points of contact on the tongue and can give like a 3D image of tongue movement. And so kind of combined, you can get a sense of how the articulators are working and potentially pick up on some subtle changes that may be occurring that may account for the changes we see perceptually or hear perceptually. As it relates to gait kinematics, there are two systems that we've used with our colleagues in engineering. One is kind of the traditional one where they place these kind of ping pong ball-like sensors, size sensors on the individual. Usually they're wearing like a Lycra suit and then they're walking and there are cameras, like 360 cameras that are picking up on their movements and it can create a 3D image of their gait kinematics. For this study, we figured it was going to be probably difficult for an individual with Huntington's disease to potentially change into this Lycra suit. So they have other systems that don't require that, where you place these sensors, I think, I can't remember how many there are, maybe 17 sensors at the ankles, thigh, wrist, elbow, and so on, that can pick up on the individual's movements wirelessly and also create a 3D image of that. We're starting to now look at some of those data um, and hopefully we'll have something to report soon. The idea being that we want to see and document what changes may be occurring in speech due to these medications. For the most part, there's been focus on physical function related to gait and mobility, but less has been done looking at changes in speech function. We've also done some research just even looking at the speech perceptual characteristics of individuals with Huntington's disease. You know, typically individuals with HD will present with what we would consider a hyperkinetic dysarthria. Okay. These folks will have, you know, imprecise articulation. They may have irregular articulatory breakdowns. They may present with prolonged phonemes. So they may hold out a phoneme. They oftentimes will have variable rate. There may be what we would consider inappropriate silences where these longer gaps of without speech that were not intended. Sometimes there are these more brief gaps kind of within an utterance that occur. And all told, um, that kind of, uh, kind of hints at a hyperkinetic dysarthria. And while that's kind of like the common kind of set of characteristics, what we recognize is that people present differently. And so we did a study where we looked at, I think we had 48 individuals with Huntington's disease, all of whom had consistent motor speech recordings, uh, consistent samples. We had a group of six trained raters rate each participant based on the Mayo classification system, and then initiated a cluster analysis to see whether all of these individuals kind of fell within kind of the same group and clustered similarly, or were there separate groups out there, right? And what we found is that there were kind of four distinct groups that were in our sample of 48 individuals. And they varied somewhat on their rate of speech. Some had slightly faster speech and others had slow or what would be considered normal speech. And that was consistent with what we were hearing, right? Is that there are some individuals with HD, all of them have a hyperkinetic dysarthria, kind of their presentation is a little bit different. And we still, we don't know right now exactly what might be driving some of those differences. 
Some of it could be severity, although we tried to control for that, but there definitely were some differences in severity. And that certainly may be playing a role in this. But there may be some other kind of underlying issues that kind of drive whether someone is going to be speaking more quickly or a little bit more slowly or seemingly have a more normal rate of speech. And so kind of more to come on that. I had another colleague who did a similar study kind of looking at those same samples, but instead of, of having six trained raters look at the 38 characteristics of the Mayo classification system, he used a free classification approach where individuals listened to a sample, same 48 samples, and for each sample, they would put them on a grid, and then they listened to the first sample, they put them on a grid, listened to the second sample, and well, did it sound like the first sample? Yes, okay, I'm gonna put it next to that. If not, I'm gonna put it on another part of the grid. And at the end, what you find is that people were, just based on their own personal interpretation of perceptual characteristics, were grouping people, okay? And in doing this work, he was trying to ask people to write notes as to kind of what was driving their decision to place a participant in one group or another. And what he found is that there was actually overlap between what the individuals did doing this free classification and what the cluster analysis showed in the other study, which was good. I mean, it wasn't a perfect correlation, but it was there was overlap there. And so interestingly, people were hearing or seemingly kind of picking out some of these features that we're also seemingly distinguishing these groups in um, this other study. Those raters in the second study, they were untrained. Yes, they were all graduate students who had taken my motor speech course. So we wanted to have some consistency, but they had not necessarily been trained in the same way that the other group had for the other study. So we started doing some work kind of in that space. My colleague, who I mentioned previously, Ancha Meffert, she is doing work looking at not just Huntington's disease, but individuals with Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, ALS, and seeing how these participants who are in these different diagnostic categories who present with different diseases, how they respond to some of the typical treatments that we use for motor speech disorders, right? Kind of some of the classic global treatments that we use are trying to get someone to speak more slowly, to speak more loudly, and to speak more clearly. And so she's collecting data on how these different diagnostic groups respond to those treatment approaches, or at least those kind of facilitation approaches, because it's kind of put within one session. So we're hoping to get some kind of practical data, not just about kind of how these individuals present and how we perceive their speech, but then how they respond to different kind of global speech modifying approaches that being changing rate, initiating clear speech, improving, uh, and then trying to get them to speak more loudly. Interesting. Well, we hope that you can come back and give us an update on, on all of these different research projects. Yes. Are there any others that you want to mention? I'm sure there are, but they're escaping me right now. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into the Center of Excellence for Huntington's Disease Clinic at Vanderbilt University. That's like a mouthful, isn't it? At Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So the Center of Excellence for Huntington's Disease Clinic at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. When did it start? Can you share a little bit about its history and its current focus? I know we mentioned it a little bit before, but if you could give us a little bit more detail, that'd be great. I'm not sure exactly when it received its designation as a Center of Excellence. Exactly. I know I got involved in 2016 
with the clinic, which is when I believe they had the designation at that time. And if you have a center of excellence, you have to have an interdisciplinary clinic. And so it really started from Dr. Daniel Clausen's work. He's the neurologist who's over the clinic. He became interested in Huntington's disease, saw that they were, I imagine this was around 2014, 2015, uh, around 40 active patients with Huntington's disease that were being seen by neurology at the UMC at that time. He talked to his colleagues and said, I'd like to start a, a specialty clinic related to Huntington's disease. So I'd like to start seeing these patients if you would, wouldn't mind me taking over their care. Um, and then from there, he went out to the community and talked to community neurologists about this. And then from there, kind of word spreads. When you have a clinic that where individuals know where you know that the providers are very familiar with your disease, people want to go. And so it has grown from the 40 patients that we started off with to well over 300 individuals with Huntington's disease who come in to the clinic each year. And so it's a pretty dynamic clinic. It started off as a one day a month clinic, but then probably five, five years ago, maybe or six years ago, we moved to a weekly clinic. So now it's every Friday. There are, I think, about four neurologists who staff the clinic, not every week, but they take turns throughout the month. So there are four neurologists. There are two social workers who work in the clinic. There's a pharmacist who works in the clinic, a genetic counselor. I participate in the clinic, and there's a doctoral student who's completing her clinical fellowship who works with me. We have another research speech pathologist who just started who's in the clinic, and then I take students over there. So there would be two students starting next week in the clinic with me. How about OT and PT? Are they part of the clinic? So OT and PT are not a part of the clinic, but we incorporate that into the screening that the speech pathology team does. Right now, one of the challenges with interdisciplinary clinics, at least the way that this one is structured, and we're trying to hopefully change this in the future, which would make it such that we could include OTPT, is that we're not billing for our time in this clinic. We're doing screenings. I use it as a chance to an opportunity to train doctoral students and clinical fellows, as well as master students. So it's an educational opportunity as well. If we were to add OT and PT, we would need to have a dedicated clinic where we were billing for our, our time. So in the absence of that, we screen for potential issues that would be addressed by an OT or PT. So the way that the clinic works is patients will come in, they will see the neurologist, and then the other folks who are involved in the clinic will see the patient depending on the patient's needs. So if the patient is having complaints of speech, cognitive, swallowing issues, then we will go in and see the patient. And we've created a, or if they're having some mobility issues, challenges with activities of daily living, we will also be sent in because we're also screening for um, those issues. So probably six years ago or so, the uh, my colleagues who I work with at the Rehab Institute in OT and PT helped create a series of questions like five screening questions for OT and four or five for PT. We've kind of changed them a little bit over the years, but we came up with those questions. We came up with five screening questions for speech that if a patient responds to any one of those with information about it being a challenge, 
we consider whether or not they need rehabilitation services. So from a speech perspective, we ask questions about their motor speech function. So how well they, whether they think there's any change in their speech, whether that change in speech impacts their communication with their family or with um, unfamiliar listeners. Are they having difficulty with their thinking or their memory? Are they having difficulty multitasking? Are they having difficulty chewing and swallowing? Have they had a swallowing study in the past? And if so, what were the results? And so we can get from those just series of questions, an idea about their speech, their cognitive communicative function, and their swallowing. From an occupational therapy perspective, we're interested in whether or not they can safely get to um, the bathroom and or whether they need help from a family, whether or not they can get ready in the morning, bathe and dress themselves, whether they're experiencing any fine motor control in their upper extremity, whether they feel fatigue or develop fatigue throughout the day. And we also talk with them about whether there are any household chores that are impossible or difficult to complete independently. And then finally, we ask about driving because that's a big concern too with this disease. And that's one of the biggest challenges, I think for most neurodegenerative conditions is when should the individual stop driving? I mean, it's a big loss of independence, but it's a major safety issue. And then we talk about potential physical therapy needs. Have they fallen in the last six months? And if so, have they fallen more than twice? Do they use any assistive devices like a cane, a walker, a wheelchair to get around? Or do they use their furniture to walk around in their house? And I think we've all kind of seen individuals kind of who may have some loss of balance kind of get around their surroundings by holding on to whatever is in their environment. And so we ask them about that. Oh, that's a good question to ask them. Yes, yes. And you can get a lot of good information from them with that. We also talk to them about whether they've considered a need for any modifications to their home. You know, are, if they have uh, like how many steps go up to their house, are they able to navigate those safely? Do they have to get up the stairs to get to bed, to their bedroom? Do they have grab bars in the shower or in the restroom? Are the doors wide enough? for them to get through if they have a wheelchair, you know? So we'll ask those questions and based on their responses, right? And pretty much like, especially early on, if they indicate that they're having difficulty in with any of those items and any of the three areas that we're asking, then we may say, you know what? It's a good idea to get a baseline assessment by speech, PT and OT, okay? So that we can figure out where you are maybe able to give some recommendations, provide some education, provide some strategies, determine whether there are some modifications to the house that would be advisable, and are there resources in the community that can help you attain that? And so that is how that the clinic runs. And then from there, individuals are referred either to our Rehabilitation Institute at Vanderbilt, if they live locally or would like to come back to Vanderbilt, or we find a location in their community where they can receive care. Some individuals have difficult because they are not able to drive and their spouse may be working um, and not able to drive them. They may need home health care to go into the, the home and provide that service. That makes sense. Well, thank you for that explanation. And it 
is it, I mean, it's just really amazing to think that there were 40 people who were just being seen. And now that there, there are 300, over 300 people who are being seen in a very systematic, um, all-encompassing, holistic way. So thank you for being part of that. And thank you for all the work that you do to help the people that you do. You're welcome. It's It's been a, a great experience. Well, thank you. Okay. So swallowing, how is swallowing impacted by Huntington's? So swallowing is impacted by the abnormal movements that occur. So a lot of what we see, uh, many of the things that we address in Huntington's from a speech perspective, speech language pathology perspective, are related to kind of the, the motor function, right? Whether it be its impact on speech or its impact on swallowing. And essentially, individuals will develop some poor coordination across the systems involved in swallowing, right? Whether it be chewing adequately or propelling the bolus back into the pharynx and adequately closing off the airway. Okay. While a lot of the issues with related to dysphagia are related to the motor dysfunction, it's also related to the behavioral aspects of it, right? So in general, their system is not working as efficiently as it did before, right? It may take them a little bit longer to chew, harder to uh, coordinate pushing um, the, the food back, coordinating the pharyngeal phase of the swallow, and so on, the timing gets thrown off, right? And that can result in penetration, aspiration, and those things. But on top of that, even individuals who have, they might be kind of more mildly impacted by the motor symptoms, right? They're there, they're present, they're not functioning as efficiently, they may have a mild dysarthria, it may be clear that their swallowing mechanism is not working as efficiently, but their big challenge comes from the behavioral side of things, Okay. They will inadequately chew their food. They will eat too quickly and shovel mouthfuls of food into their mouth before they've swallowed the previous mouthful, okay? They may take multiple sips from a cup and have difficulty managing the flow of liquid, resulting in coughing and choking episodes. And so while the motor component is real, oftentimes early on, I would say it is kind of the behavioral component that's the bigger issue. And so we try to address that in a couple of ways. Oftentimes the behavioral issue is driven by the fact that the person's not aware that this is a problem, right? Their family's pointing out, hey, you're eating too quickly. You're not chewing your food enough. You're not giving yourself enough time. The patient may not be fully aware of that. And so it needs to be brought to their attention, okay? And sometimes bringing it to their attention can be that alone can help, right? And they can maybe self-regulate. Gets to a point where they have difficulty with that self-regulation, right? And so we've talked even about like having signs up that say, you know, eat slowly, small bites and sips, um, alternate solids and liquids, right? But that's a cognitive load, right? You have to be thinking about that. You have to be looking at those cues, registering those cues, and then internalizing them and doing that, right? And so that is a challenge with HD because you've got this impulsive behavior, but you also have this cognitive decline going along with it, which makes it challenging for the individual to implement some of the strategies. So some of the things that we've done to try to kind of address this is to try to take some of the cognitive load off of this, right? And make it such that even if they try to eat too quickly, they can't. Or if they try to drink too much at one time, they can't. 
And so a couple of things that we do is one, try to avoid distraction, right? We tell them to, when you're eating, turn off the television, like reduce conversation, focus on the food and the liquid that's in front of you, right? That's one, one thing, okay? Which can help kind of just create a more calm environment for them to. We'll also tell individuals to, one, only take enough food on your plate that you can manage, okay? So instead of taking a, you know, typical American size, you know, plate of food, but, you know, I feel like it's gotten more and more over the years, we take a smaller amount of food. And sometimes we'll say, listen, I want you to use a smaller plate. You know, you can use a, like a, a salad plate, or you can use a, even a saucer, right? Like size plate. You take food on your plate. That's enough for you to eat right now. If you eat too quickly, okay, it's still a small amount. You should be able to handle it, right? And you can always get more. You can always get more food, okay? We also tell individuals to consider using a straw if, when they're drinking, okay? So that they're not having to tip their head back and manage flow of liquid that comes from drinking directly from a cup, but rather drinking from a straw may give them a better posture for swallowing. Their chin may be up or maybe slightly tucked. Them a little bit more control over the bolus, okay? For individuals for whom that's not working, we have recommended that individuals use either like a specialty cup that limits how much you can take per sip. There's a cup called a Proval cup that you can purchase online, or I think you can get it at Walmart too, that limits the amount of liquid that you can take in any one sip. And you have to bring the cup down for you to take another sip of that amount. We've also recommend what, what's called a, um, a safe straw, which is an attachment that you place a regular straw on top of, and there's a small weight at the bottom. And as you suck in with the straw, it allows a certain amount of liquid in, but once that weight stops the flow in the straw, you have to release suction for it to um, fill up again. And so it really, it's a great tool. We have had a lot of success with our patients using that. I can think of one uh, individual who came in with, came in with her grandmother and they were, they, her grandmother was very concerned about her swallowing function, said, you know, she'd be up in her room drinking a, you know, Diet Dr. Pepper, coughing, you know, every few seconds, you know, and it just was devastating to hear. We said, you know, try a straw. The straw itself didn't really help. But then we tried the safe straw and they came back and they said she has not coughed since she started using it. She used it for about a year consistently and then tried just using the straw on her own. And interestingly enough, she had kind of trained herself to take a reasonable sip just based on that. And so she always has it and she can use it if she needs to. But her grandmother said, I've allowed her not to use it and she's done well. And so we've had others who've had success like that as well. So oftentimes what we, we try to do is set up a system where, especially if they're having some cognitive issues related to kind of self-monitoring and awareness, to address that by removing some of the cognitive load through some of these strategies, right? Reduced amount of food on the plate, potentially smaller utensils, using a straw instead of a cup. If you're going to use a cup, using a cup that limits how much you can take per sip. 
you're going to use a straw, potentially use a safe straw that limits how much you can take per sip. And those things, with those changes, they don't have to think about it, right? They don't have to be, it doesn't have to be top of mind. And the family doesn't need to remind them. Yes, exactly. And it takes a little bit of the load and burden off of the family too. So those are some of the things that we address with swallowing. But of course, as the disease progresses, swallowing is going to progressively worsen. And so they will periodically get video fluoroscopic swallowing studies completed to find out where they are and what may need to change in terms of their diet. Do we need to go from regular diet to a mechanical soft diet to a puree diet? Do they need thickened liquids? And those recommendations are made, and then we talk about how to implement them. Okay. And how about electrical stim with this population? These individuals aren't experiencing weakness, right? It's about coordination. coordination. Okay. And so I can say at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, we don't use e-stim treatment for swallowing. And, and we don't use it, and we don't use it at all, but we don't use it with, we wouldn't use it with this population because it's not, the issue that they're having is not with weakness where you are trying to stimulate the muscles move. There's oftentimes too much movement and in coordination of movement. And so what we want to do is set them up for a situation where it's going to make it easier for them to swallow given their coordination. So small bites, small sips, alternating solids and liquids as needed, maybe changing, as I mentioned, um, kind of some of their eating habits. So they're taking smaller portions, but eating more of those mm-hmm. portions um, and, and some of the other uh, compensatory strategies. That's great. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, how about we have a little bit more time left. How about some therapeutic strategies for speech? Sure. So as individuals with HD begin to have difficulty with speech function, as I mentioned, there some of their biggest issues are this variable rate, kind of the irregular articulatory breakdown. I would say variability is kind of the key word here. And what we try to do with these individuals is to slow them down. Okay. And that's, of course, easier said than done. Mm-hmm. So we'll use some pacing techniques for them. It might be using a pacing board. It might be using alphabet supplementation. That's one that we like to use here. And we find that a lot of times patients will use them in some situations, but not others. And depending on their progress, uh, like how far they've progressed in terms of their cognitive function or their behavioral function, they may need to have those supports presented by the, the family. It's like, hey, why don't you say that again, but use your board now, right? So. Early on, we try to get them to use it independently, but as individuals decline, they may need the family to step in to say, hey, you need to say that again, and why don't you use your support? So pacing is a big one. We'll also, as individuals have more challenge with their speech and their communication overall, we'll go to using some augmentative alternative communication. Typically, we're using some kind of low-tech system, might be, you know, pictures or whatnot in a picture book. We might use an app if it's early on and they're from a cognitive standpoint, we feel like they can be trained on it and use it. We might use some communication apps in order to help them communicate. But oftentimes we're kind of developing systems that as their speech declines, that the family or the caregiver can use collaboratively with the patient. 
to help communicate, right? Give them choices to kind of constrain uh, what it is they're trying to communicate. So we take those kind of approaches with regard to speech. And as far as uh, any devices, they don't really have the motor control or the eye gaze. We've had on occasion some individuals who have presented with less of a kind of Korea presentation and more dystonia. So they had more postural issues, but not as much of the Koreaform movements um, with the head. And so their head was a little more stable and they were able to use a eye gaze system later on in the disease as it was warranted. But that's not the norm. That was kind of a, a few kind of one-off situations where that took place. And then supportive conversation techniques with the family and the social circle, other changes. That is, that's something that we use with all, regardless of diagnosis. You know, if you have a communication issue, we work on supported conversation techniques with the family and, you know, making sure that that they ensure that the patient has an avenue for communication, that they understand that it is a collaborative effort to communicate and that they may have to provide more or less support depending on the situation, that we try to train multimodal communication, writing keywords, restating what the individual has said, asking for clarification, giving them an option to respond, even if it needs to be yes or no, giving them options to respond to choices if they're trying to figure out what they'd like to eat or what they'd like to drink or what they would like to watch or where they'd like to go or how they're feeling that day and kind of work on that that approach. So that's kind of what we do from a speech perspective. From a cognitive perspective, and again, it kind of depends on where the individual is in the progression. Early on, we have some individuals who come in who are still working. They're still in their same profession um, and working at a high level. And they may need to use kind of the same types of strategies that we might use with an individual who had a mild traumatic brain injury or a TBI overall, where we try to leverage, you know, alarms on their phone, getting them to you know, use their notes tab to keep track of information, use their calendar function and their phone to potentially use a paper and pencil calendar if that's going to be more useful. We might work on if they're struggling with tasks in their everyday life, we may have to do some breakdown of the components of those tasks and train them up on them. OK, but then again, that is dependent upon them having the ability to handle that that type of treatment as they progress in the disease, it becomes more challenging for them to do that. So then we start working on what we can do in the environment. Can we reduce distractions within the environment? Can we maybe put a whiteboard up in the kitchen or the living room that has the daily schedule for them, right? So they have a chance to see that. Can we kind of review those daily events? We know what the schedule is for that day. Can we review at the end of the day what was done so that they have a better understanding of what they did that day and they can remember it maybe day to day, right? So they have more awareness of kind of what they've accomplished in their everyday life. And so early on, we focus on definitely patient-centered and focused strategies. And then as we shift, as the disease progresses, we start working on both working with the patient and the family as the burden really shifts more towards the family. That may be necessary for medication management, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. 
And then as far as psychiatric issues that may develop, can you touch upon those? Yes. So individuals with HD may develop depression, anxiety, irritability. There are some other psychological issues that may arise. There may be some kind of mania that people experience at times. Individuals with HD sometimes become obsessive compulsive. So they may become obsessive in terms of smoking or obsessive in terms of drinking their Diet Dr. Peppers or their Mountain Dews, right? Obsessive in eating chocolate. We had one individual who was obsessive about drinking water and was terrified that he was going to lose weight. And so would drink tons of water all day, constantly having to use the restroom. And every time he'd use the restroom, he'd feel like he'd have to replenish after that. And so it made it difficult for him to sleep because he was waking up every hour or so to use the restroom, then would drink a glass of water, go back to bed, get up, repeat, right? And that was hard to try to break him of that cycle. And I don't know that we ever were truly successful in breaking him of that. But he was really concerned about the impact of not being properly hydrated. But oftentimes we don't have individuals who seemingly have a more healthy bent on it. It seems to be more, you know, focused on, you know, being obsessive about smoking, about chocolate, about unhealthier foods. Well, even even water, you can have too much of a good thing, right? That's true. You can get dangerous as well. So those are some of those issues that may arise. Also, suicidal ideation is also quite common in in Huntington's disease. A good portion of individuals with Huntington's disease attempt suicide at some point during the duration of the disease. May not be successful in completing suicide, but do attempt suicide. There are also issues with poor decision-making that results in legal issues. We've had some of our patients in our clinic who have spent time in prison related to bad decisions that they made that were, I would say, you know, highly likely related to their Huntington's disease. And so that poses a challenge for sure. Individuals can make poor decisions with their money, with whom they hang out with, whom they have relationships with, and that can lead to to trouble sometimes. You know what? There are similarities, certainly, amongst individuals with Huntington's disease, but there are also a lot of differences I've seen. And a lot of that relates to the environment that the individual is in, the support that they have, their socioeconomic status, their access to resources. And it can really kind of change some level the trajectory and what's possible with the individual. Some are living with individuals who do not have HD and are kind of capable of caring for them. And I've observed families where There are multiple generations of individuals with HD who are all living together without anybody who who is not diagnosed with HD. And so that poses a particular set of issues in terms of kind of who is going to care for the, the person who is least impacted but still impaired. This is why we have incredible social workers who work in the clinic, who are in constant contact with uh, the patients in clinic as a resource uh, for challenges that arise on a daily basis. Wow, that's great. Well, and your clinic is a resource to all the SLPs who are listening to this. You know, if you are anywhere in the country and you have someone with Huntington's disease, you could refer them to the Vanderbilt Center or other centers. Do you know how many centers of excellence there are around the country? I don't. There are a number of them out there and they're they're in like 
I think most regions of the country probably have an HD center of excellence. Some are involved in, I think all of them are involved in research, some probably more than others. And I think that's a driver for some folks to come to our clinic because our neurologists are heavily involved with clinical trials that are going on internationally. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Michael DeRiesfall. I really appreciate it. Um, we appreciate you providing this information and taking time out of your busy schedule to spend time with us. And this will be recorded in the future. And I will thank you from our participants as well, because I know this information will be helpful for them serving patients with Huntington's disease. Well, thank you very much, Mary Beth. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Huntington's disease and the clinic that we have at Vanderbilt. Well, thank you. And we do hope that you come back to speechtherapypd.com with a webinar or another presentation in the future. Great. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.